airwaves, here is my request. You don't have to play it, but I hope you'll do your best. I've been listening to your show on the radio, and you seem like a friend to me. Howdy, hi, Victoria. Stand the man. Hello. Oh, don't get up, it's only me. Hello, welcome to a brand new year. I'm Liz. I'm Pete. 1420 3XY, how are you? It's nine after six with Lee Simon. It's 18 to six, 3DB with Keith McGowan. More grand old favourites to play for you a little later on. 3 E, the breeze 693. Good morning and welcome to our brand new radio station. Good afternoon, Melbourne. It's seven minutes past three. This is Greg Evans at 1420, 3XY. Well, hi, and welcome once again to Pilots of the Airwaves, our 40 minutes or so where we talk to the people behind the voices who were friends to a whole generation and others who were simply larger-than-life idols, generally out of the 60s and associated with stations such as 3UZ in Melbourne, 2UE in Sydney and 4BH in Brisbane. And our guest today was known as BG on BH or simply just The Swingin' Gates. Bill Gates, welcome to Pilots, and thanks so much for joining us. Well, thank you very much for having me on your show. Well, Bill, when we go back to where it all started for you, we're talking early 50s in Sydney and 2UW as a panel operator. How old were you when you actually entered the crazy world of radio, and why was radio your choice? Uh, Actually, I was a a country boy, and I was uh, sent to boarding school in Sydney. And uh, I left school after I passed the intermediate certificate, luckily. And I didn't go back to the farm, and I I went and got a job as an office boy at a Lintas uh, advertising agency. And I got the job as office boy there from a a young fellow called John Mellion, who you remember became a a legendary uh, movie star and uh, also television um, star in in Australia. He, He died a couple of years ago. I got John Mellion's job and started to take the uh, radio commercials from the agency around to all of the radio stations in Sydney and went into 2UW one day with a whole bunch of them under my arm and uh, hit it off well with the manager of the copy department there, a guy called Guy Crittenden, uh, who you might remember. And Guy um, offered me a job and I became a panel operator at 2UW. Now, the first time behind the microphone was at 2MW in Mwillumbar in 1953, and then on to 4BU in Bundaberg. No doubt, Bill, living the lifestyle of a high-profile radio personality. Uh, not really. Not in Bundaberg. I, I was in the surf club in Bundaberg. I joined the surf club there and lived at the surf club and uh, lived on bananas and uh, other assorted edibles, which weren't of much quality. So Mwillumbar was pretty rough, but I stayed there for a whole year, which I thought was pretty good. So what important lessons did you learn from those first two on-air appointments? Uh, well, I learned that I wasn't getting enough paid enough at uh, 2MW. I, I uh, was paying a push bike off for two shillings a week, and I, I could never see the end of it. 
So I got into the Bundaberg radio station, got paid a lot more, and I, I stayed there for quite a while till I bought a motorbike and, and rode it to Brisbane and got a job at 4BH and became one of several nighttime radio announcers on uh, 4BH. And uh, there, the legendary Bob Rogers was the star. And when he was hired out by TUE, the station management uh, had me take over the shows that he had established, and I went along with that. And I also compared Rampus Room occasionally. And I started things called Record Hops um, and made some money from them and bought a little sports car at an MGTF. The Record Hops uh, were held at the O'Connor Boathouse, for about six or seven years, I ran them, and, uh, and unfortunately, I got out of a race car in 1967 at Surface Paradise, and somebody told me that someone had uh, burnt the bud house down. One of our competitors decided uh, the kids could go to their, their dances instead. So that was uh, that little part of the era. I did the Craven A hit parade on uh, 4BH on Macquarie and then the network on 78 stations around Australia. And uh, they sort of liked it and sent me around the world. And I interviewed many stars of the music scene at the time and went into San Francisco and L.A. and Las Vegas and Chicago, Nashville and New York and uh, sent all the uh, tapes back and they were played on those stations around Australia. So it was BG on BH and a very successful 12-year relationship at 4BH. What was the format like when you first arrived and how much had it changed by the mid-60s? Uh, the format when Bob Rogers was running the the uh, the platter chatter was called then, and, and it, there wasn't any top forty format or so much, but uh, but we just picked the music. I don't think the charm of the disc jockey at the time in that era was that uh, if you liked the guy's music, the music that he played, you listened to him, and that's why Bob was such a success. He knew how to pick music, and I uh, I followed in his footsteps. So. Uh, that's how that worked, and we we uh, did that for. Uh, we we used to send overseas and get the records sent to us before anybody else could play them. A little record shop in uh, San Francisco, uh, Market Street, San One Hundred Eight Oh. I can remember the address. They used to send us uh, stuff every month, and uh, in fact, Bob was playing Heartbreak Hotel by Elvis Presley at least six months before anyone else in Australia had it. Now, 4BH promoted itself as top dog radio with yourself, John Daly, and Graham Cherry leading the charge. Did the ratings at the time reflect that tag? Yes, they did. We were number one most of the time, I think. Uh, 4BC were right behind us, but uh, 4IP hadn't come on the scene at that stage. So, so the, uh, and, and we, we had uh, a really good uh, roll-up of uh, announcers. I had Don Lunn in there. We had... Uh, uh, Dale Miles, a couple other guys who were really good. So we, we had a good team. Now, you touched on before the opportunity provided by the station to travel to the States to interview some of the big names at the time, including, I believe, the late, great Sam Cooke. That's right. Sam was in uh, Los Angeles. I was lucky. I got into LA. I can remember all this very well. Uh, from San Francisco on the weekend, which was a bit of a blow because I couldn't, you know, go and knock people up at record companies. But I did wander down to the uh, Charlie Chaplin Studios and uh, walked in and uh, Sam Cooke was recording. You send me. And uh, so I had a chat to him in between takes and uh, he was a delightful person and that was a tragedy 
when he got shot and murdered, actually, uh, some years later. Now, of course, you and John Daly left the kennel in 1968 and signed up with the rivals on 4BK. Now, was it simply a case of time to move on, or, Bill, was it more involved than that? Oh, yes, I remember what happened. It was a stupid thing. I, I was, they were sending me out to do outside broadcasts everywhere. One of them was at, at uh, Bribey Island. Do you know the country up here at all? You don't, probably. Mm-hmm. But anyway, there's an island off the coast up on the Sunshine Coast called Bribey. And, uh, and they had a bridge across. They just built the bridge. Now you can just drive across. But then it was a toll bridge. So I used to go up there every weekend and broadcast out of a mobile unit on the beach. Uh, for 4BH, and uh, and then I came back uh, and I'd put in a a petty cash. <laughs> this is this is true. I'd put in a petty cash docket for uh, you know the toll cost, which was uh, you know t- uh, two shillings or something. Anyway, the management decided they wouldn't pay me my, my toll costs, so I, I I thought that was nasty. So I I rang 4BK and they said you can start here on Monday. <laughs> And that's how that came about. Yeah, speaking of moves, how did that move to BBC One in London come about? Well, I went to I went overseas in nineteen sixty nine. I'd been doing radio and television in Brisbane for a long time and I sort of got a bit cold on it all. And I decided to go overseas. So I went to America and I messed around there for a while, roamed about. And then I went to uh London and I, I knew Ken East, who was the manager of uh EMI Records in Sydney for many years. And he was a towering figure in the music industry. He was about six foot six, so he was a towering figure anyway. <laughs> but but he, he knew everyone around the place, and he, he got me into the uh, BBC, and I worked on Radio 1 on Sunday nights there doing that. So how was an Aussie accepted into the London marketplace? Oh, well, Aussies were pretty popular there and on Radio Carolyn. And actually, while I did that, I hosted and produced a TV program called Kangaroo Valley. And I'd have guests like uh, Spike Milligan, and I had the world champion motor racing driver, Graham Hill, and, uh, of course, Barry Gibb and the boys and a whole bunch of others and put them into this program. And we sold it to the ABC, actually. I never saw it, but my sister said she saw it a couple of times, so they must have played it. And uh, And so... I did that uh, in London. I stayed there for a whole year and worked in uh, worked in England in TV and radio. Back for a short stint in 4KQ to thaw out, I suppose, after the cold London winter, and then down to Melbourne to the iconic, all-conquering Greater 3UZ. Did 3UZ chase Gates, or did Gates chase 3UZ? Kenny Sparks was the uh, program director, and Ken and I were terrific buddies from way back in the 60s, you know, early 60s. He'd come and stayed at my place in Brisbane a couple of times. And Ken uh, had a, he was a sports car freak too. He had a Volvo P1800. Anyway, Ken rang me up when I was in London and said, would you want to come and walk Trees And I said, yes. And that's how I ended up at Trees And I worked there with all those great guys. And uh, it was, a, I, I stayed there for five years and I left and then I came back again later on. So I've got three years at I'm very fond of that. It was good. Speaking of 3UZ, you were very close to the legendary Ken Sparks. What can you tell us about Ken Sparks, the professional media personality, and Ken Sparks, the mate? 
Oh, well, Ken was a, a great voiceover man, as you would know. And uh, well, everyone in Sydney would know because he, he was the voice of Channel 9 in Sydney for years. And uh, and he was a very funny guy too and, and a great radio announcer. And uh, as a person, he was uh, always trying to impress the ladies. <laughs> I suppose we all were. And he, he, was a, he was a great guy to hang around with. I enjoyed his company for years and years and years. And I was very sad when he passed away. So how special was that first stint at 3UZ, and what did make it special? Um, well, 3UZ was the standout radio station uh, in those times, I thought, in Melbourne, uh, because mainly of the manager, Lewis Bennett, and his uh, taskmaster, uh, the, the program manager, John McMahon, who was a really tough cookie. But anyway... Uh, 3UZ had such a great lineup of people, didn't they? They had Stan Rofe, yeah, Lappin, and uh, John Vertigan, of course, was there. And uh, we, we, we had a great radio station going there for a long time. Now, Bill, we've spoken a number of times to our guests about this particular dilemma, but your 12 to 4 shift on 3UZ in 1970 was all about top 40 music and descriptions of the Kilmore Trots. How did that mix, or some might say interruption, sit with you as a broadcaster? Uh, it was very difficult. Uh, well, it wasn't difficult to do. So, you know, technically, we, it was easy. But it, uh, to my, you know, to my format-oriented uh, mind, it was uh, suicide. Uh, but we did have very good people doing the races. Bert Bryant was classic, and uh, and he, he he could be extremely funny on the air too. And the, and the racing was so popular then, and still is, of course. But it, uh, use it uh, and DB covered the races together and uh, really did a great job. And um, Bert was very good and very funny too. He bought a when I was there, I was on the air with crossing to Bert for the races, and he bought a greyhound at one stage. And uh, just for a gag, I said to him, "I suppose you're going to put the." picture of a bus on the side of your greyhound you know <laughs> he didn't like that at all so we sort of fell out over that and he never spoke to me again <laughs> this is pilots of the airwaves we're with the legendary bill gates and bill you were lured north to be program director of another iconic station in 2uw now by the time you arrived john laws was well and truly established at the station with a fairly strong lineup to support him how good was laws John Laws, I think, was the best broadcaster that radio ever produced in Australia, and uh, still is probably. I don't get to hear him too much up here, but uh, but he was, well, you know what he was like. He was just so good on the radio, and his voice was so good, and his uh, sense of humour was so good. So you, he was he was terrific, you know, I mean, and still is. You also worked with Ward Pally Austin, again one of the great Sydney broadcasters. Now, Austin never tried his hand in the Melbourne marketplace. Would that have been because opportunities were well, not forthcoming or that he just wasn't interested? I think he was a Sydney guy through and through, Ward. Ward Pally, you know, he just loved Sydney and he loved the, uh, the beaches and, and he was uh, into the lifestyle there to a, a large degree. And he was a uh, an uninhibited sort of a person and quite reckless, really. He used to drive around in his uh, little Honda, one of the original chain-driven Honda sports cars. Uh, he bought it for his wife, I think, but he used to drive it around. And he had a, uh, a Colt revolver, and he used to like to shoot the uh, 
the the light poles with the light bulbs on them. <laughs> I hope he's not. I hope his descendants aren't going to sue me over that. But that's what he used to do. <laughs> I think we're pretty safe these days, Bill. Hey, listen, speaking of big personalities, there were none bigger in Australia in the mid-70s than Don Lane, Bert Newton and Tony Barber. Now, as Programme Director at UZ during your second tour of duty in Melbourne, how did you deal with so many egos in the one place at the one time? Well, it depends on the personality, you know. I mean, Don Lane was the easiest and the most affable person you could ever meet. He came out of America, you know, and American radio, and he was just a lovely guy. And uh, Tony Barber was all, you know, all go. And Bert Newton is so uh, so varied in his talents. You know, he can do anything. He's uh, and he can make a story out of anything. So Bert, Bert's a classic entertainer, uh, and. Uh, and they they were all good to work with. There's no doubt about that. Bert and I, you know, came across for a couple of times because he had very strict ethics about how his guests were treated. And I recall very well when uh, a famous movie star, one of the women, <laughs> can't remember her name now, but anyway, she was a legend, and uh, he had her in. And the little studios at Three Years Ed were built for top forty record players, not for talk shows. So, uh, so Bert decided that the whole auditorium had to be redecorated for this person to be interviewed in, and we had a bit of an argument about that because it disrupted the whole operation. You know, I hope Bert doesn't hear this, <laughs> or, or I'll be in big trouble from the Melbourne mafia. <laughs> so, Bill, what entices a disc jockey at heart who seems to have his roots well and truly grounded in the cut and thrust of commercial radio? To take on the job of musical director at the ABC, which then expanded into a 12-year relationship with Auntie that included a move back to Queensland. Well, uh, 3UZ got to the stage where the races uh, were inhibiting the the creation of 3UZ in an FM format. And, uh, And I don't know why, but the owners of the station decided they'd sell it. And they sold it to... uh, some other people and they came in and uh, I didn't really hit it off with them and I don't think they wanted me there anyway so I, I had a contract luckily so I was able to get them to buy me out and we bought a motel up on the Murray River my wife and I and Donna and uh, and we went and ran the motel for three years and uh, why I went to the ABC is I just got sick of all the motel business although it was quite good, profitable, but uh, I, I uh, applied for the job to get back into any sort of radio, and one of them was uh, 4QR, who wanted a music director, and happily, at the time, uh, they decided that I was the bloke to do that, so that's how I got to the, to the ABC, and then they, they started to use me in other areas, and I managed to uh, get them interested in uh, formatted music. I'm there instead of all the people picking, you know, eight records for the day, the machine would pick them all for the month. <laughs> and so I put some automated uh, music selection systems into radio stations around Australia for the ABC, flew everywhere. And, uh, and then, of course, they had me running um, their two newest acquisitions, which was uh, 94.1 on the Gold Coast. I managed that and put it on the air, and it was quite successful in the early days. 
And then uh, then the radio station up on the Sunshine Coast, 90.3. So that's how I got to the ABC, and I stayed there, as you said, for 12 years until uh, they sort of changed their format completely, and instead of entertainment, they, they went into the political business. Now, we obviously can't have a chat with Bill Gates without recalling that night at the Redcliffe Speedway where a race promoter, a disc jockey and three kids called Barry, Robin and Morris, they all crossed paths and how that meeting created one of the great musical sounds of our generation. Firstly, what was it that came out of some tinny Speedway speakers that caught your attention? Well, actually, they had a little PA system set up. It was a guy called Bill Good who... uh, who needs recognition and wants it, and, uh, and I'm happy to give it to him. He, 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 he was the guy who paid them you know, to come to the Redcliffe Speedway and sing, and they put them on the back of the truck uh, in the spectator area, and so the, the kids would get up on the back of the truck, and they had a portable PA system up there, so it wasn't too bad. So you could hear them quite distinctly when they sang, and I was uh, immediately knocked out by the the harmonies that they were creating. I couldn't believe these little kids. Like Barry was 13 or 14 and the twins were nine. And they were singing harmonies that, uh, you know, that nobody else was singing. And and uh, so that's what happened. I said to Bill, why don't we uh, get these kids into the radio station and have them record a few things on a tape? And I'll see if I can play them on the air. And we did that. Went in there and recorded four songs. And then I said to Barry, what a shame they haven't got an even half dozen. He said, hang on, I'll write a couple more. (laughs) And it's true. He sat down on the stage and he wrote two more songs. And we recorded the six songs and I played them on the radio and got a terrific reaction straight away. And I sent uh, acetates of them. We used to use them before tape recorders. I sent a couple of acetates down to my good friend John uh, Bob Rogers in Sydney, who was on TUE at the time. And Bob played them, and he got a reaction too. And so they got some work. They couldn't get much work because they were little kids, so they couldn't work in the pubs. But they got a bit of work on television, and uh, and then they went down to the Gold Coast and got hired by a hotel down there to put on a little floor show every now and then. They did that until Huey Gibb, their father, and Barbara, their mother, decided that it wasn't going anywhere much, so they decided to go to Sydney. And uh, they went down there, and uh, Bob and I had talked to uh, Cole Joy and, uh, and his, uh, his mob of people, and they signed them up sort of thing with Festival Records, and that's when they started to make some records, and, make, and they appeared on television in Sydney quite frequently. Um, and uh, so they got very well known. And then, of course, as... Legend has it, they recorded uh, Spicks and Specs, and then before it hit the market, they jumped on a boat and went back to England. And halfway through the trip, when they were going around the Cape of Good Hope, they got the news that it was number one in Australia, (laughs) which I think is a huge joke. Anyway, they they got to England and uh, went to see uh, the Beatles manager, Brian, whatever his name was, and... uh, he put them on to uh, the manager they ended up with. And uh, he was a genius too. And it wasn't long before they had three hit records in a row. Now, Bill, at one stage, you and Bill Good signed the group and were contracted to receive a third of their earnings. Now, needless to say, that unfortunately that arrangement only had a limited lifespan. 
Uh, no, actually, we tore it up because we, as I mentioned earlier, we we couldn't really get them any more work where we were in Brisbane, and we sent them to Sydney, and we thought, well, what's the hell? We, so so we did uh, we did tear up the contract, and that was the end of that. Although I did send a copy of the contract to Barry years and years later, probably because Robert Stigwood was a bit nervous about the whole deal, and. Uh, and so they had a copy of the contract there with our uh, signature on it saying it was null and void. Yes, it was a silly thing to do, I know, and you think I'm stupid, and you're right. <laughs> yes, indeed. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. Now, Bill, you had the Brisbane market covered in terms of airplay for the boys. Bob Rogers was obviously looking after Sydney. Was there much support out of Melbourne? I don't think so. Uh, but I don't know, really, because I was in Brisbane, as you say, and I don't know what was going on in Melbourne then. I didn't get there till. Uh, 1969 or 70 it was. Now, in 1991, you were asked to appear on the Thames Television Bee Gees edition of This Is Your Life. Now, let's uh, rewind again to that Speedway Stadium near Brisbane. Just schoolboys, you sang from the back of a truck. Your pay was pennies tossed to you by the crowd. The year was 1959, and you made your first ever recording, 20 Miles to Blue Land. But to me, it seems like only yesterday. The Brisbane DJ who set your future spinning all those years ago from Australia, Bill Gates. Oh, come on. <laughs> it was you who finally gave the brothers their name. Well, that's right, Michael. Yeah. Uh, we had some great songs recorded and yeah. we needed a name that the people could remember. Yeah. And so we were sitting around your home at Redcliffe and it suddenly occurred to me that there are all these BGs in the room. Barry Gibb. Uh, Barbara Gibb, the brothers Gibb. Eric Smith. Eric Smith. <laughs> <laughs> we all talk about him. The Speedway promoter Bill Goods and, right. and, and Bill, Bill Gates. Gates. So all these BGs, it seemed like a good yeah. idea at the time. And Tell us a little bit about that special occasion. Okay, it was a special occasion for me, although I was uh, in the aeroplane longer than I was on the ground in London. And uh, we went out to Thames Television and uh, did the TV show and uh, uh, had a whole bunch of huge superstars there and my role in it was I came on at the end of the thing uh, as the guy who sort of got them kicked off on the radio in Australia and it was an honour and a pleasure to do all of that because they love the whole Barry Gibb thing you know the, the Gibb family are really nice people um, Barry's a really softy you know he's a lovely guy of course he's a knight now I should have more reverence but uh, uh, Morris was a hugely funny fella and a bit of an alcoholic there. He had, every, they used to buy new Rolls Royces like every month and he used to bend his on the, <laughs> on the corner of the brickwork where he lived about every day. Anyway, Morris was funny and Robin was a very serious operator but a great singer. His voice is uh, just such a keening voice. So so my, uh, my dealings with the DGs were not financially rewarding in any way at all but that didn't matter because they did uh, they did so much uh, for Australian music. I think although they weren't Australian, you know, they, and they, and even now, you know, with Barry number one in America and in uh, in England with his new album, how, how can you match that with the careers that they've had? They had eight number ones in a row in in America. As we know, Bill Barry is unfortunately the only surviving member of the group. Do you still maintain contact these days? Yeah, I do. I ring Barry up every now and then, and I, I rang him up. Uh, oh, it was interesting. I rang him up when he was knighted, 
And I got oh, I, I got their phone number and I rang in Linda, his beautiful wife, who, who he married when she was Miss Scotland. She's a lovely girl. And uh, Linda answered the phone and she was, you know, happy that it was me ringing. And I said, what do you think about Barry being made Sir Barry Gibb? He's a knight of the realm. I said, that makes you a lady. And she said to me, Bill, you should know that I always was a lady. <laughs> so, uh, so that was that, that was when I sort of last spoke. So, a broadcaster, star maker, and of course, racing car enthusiast of note, winning the twelve-hour race in Surface Paradise in 1969 and the Phillip Island 500 in 1972. How serious were you about motor racing? What was your career highlight? And which was your favourite car? Uh, well, I suppose uh, my highlight was the 12-hour race at Surface Paradise, which we won in 1969. And in 1970, we were leading by two lap, uh, by a lap, two laps from the end, and we ran out of petrol. <laughs> so that's motor racing for you. You, you know, you, you can always get a kick in the guts out of motor racing. But anyway, yes, I, 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 uh, I thought the 12-hour race was great. But winning the, uh, the class at Phillip Island also was great. I had two drives at Bathurst in, uh, in a Renault R8 once and in a twin cam escort with my good pal Max Grayson of Grayson Racing. And uh, we had a lot of fun driving at Bathurst on two occasions. And uh, I've just enjoyed motor racing so much. I have, but it got too expensive for me, uh, as it does, unless you've got a sponsor, which I didn't have. And I took up barefoot water skiing instead, because that's got a bit of a kick to it as well. And did some, uh, did some barefooting and getting some badges in that uh, sport. And which was your favourite car? Well, I had a, a, a Lotus... Uh, a land, and that was the competition car, to, and it was it was an excellent car. So I suppose that was my favourite. It was the quickest, anyway. Finally, Bill, it was no doubt a great honour to be recognised in the Queen's Silver Jubilee year of 1977, and with the awarding of the Silver Jubilee Medal. Yes, that's right. That's uh, I'm very proud of that, and it was a uh, very interesting. Uh, three weeks that uh, I went over there, and we had six radio stations. At my command, yeah, well, not really, but I mean, I was the program person, and we worked, we worked out of Capital Radio, and we were on the air from midnight till three in the morning, uh, for two weeks uh, with different ra- with three radio stations one week and the other three the next week, and it was pretty hard yakka, and I was the guy who had to find all of the talent for them to do the interviews with. So I was so busy, and Harry Miller ran the whole operation out of Sydney before Harry got into trouble. And he was, uh, actually he was the chairman of the board of Qantas at the time, which was fortunate because it meant I could fly first class for the first time in my life. (laughs) Anyway, uh, I did this for Harry Miller and the, the whole thing was a great success really because it turned out later when the surveys came out that those all those six stations in that period uh, had become number one radio station in, in their market. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Gary Owens. Did you know that Donald Duck goes to work with a picture of Bill Gates on his lunchbox? It's true. You're listening to Pilots of the Airwaves, and this week's special guest is Bill Gates. Bill, time now for a dozen or so of those quick-fire jock questions. The one we always start off with, where were you when you heard that John Lennon had died? 
I was at three you said it was in nineteen eighty I think and uh and it was shocking news but uh you know I mean they had split up the Beatles had split up, and there was a bit of uh animosity I suppose between them all so it it, it was just terrible luck that he he died because he was making a very interesting career very solo part of his career but I did visit his memorial in Central Park uh, in the 90s a couple of times when I was in New York and it's very beautiful to see it's just across the road from where he was shot the last concert ticket that you actually paid for and the last concert ticket I paid for was a ticket to see Robin Gibb on his farewell Australian tour and uh, he was on his own but he did because he, he had so many hits uh, as the soloist with, with the Bee Gees. So, so it was a good concert, very good, and beautiful songs that he sang. And he did some wonderful things by uh, putting up uh, uh, some uh, film of, uh, of the boys helping him. And of course, he was very gracious about my role in uh, the Bee Gees' original career when I uh, recorded some acetates with them, which, which we talked about earlier. Is there a concert act you regret never seeing? The one I really wanted to see and I never did get to see was Eric Clapton. As I love the way Eric plays the blues and sings the blues. And, uh, and he's a joy, that guy. I, I, just love, I, love, I love Eric Clapton. Bill, was there any one word that you had the most trouble pronouncing on air? Well, this is interesting because I had a sponsor when I first got onto 4BH. There were two announcers on at night. And uh, we were all playing cereals all night, you know, and, and one of the cereals was sponsored by a cannery up here. It's still going strong. You know? They do great business. Golden Circle. You've heard of Golden Circle Cannery. Mm-hmm. They do pineapple pieces and all of that stuff. Anyway, they had a nice big fat one-minute commercial that you had to read every quarter hour. And the, the, the nasty person who I was on the air with, a senior guy, wouldn't let me read it. <laughs> in fact, I wouldn't read much at all in the whole hour, you know, four hours. If I got to say the Tintara time call once, that was a big night. And that was, uh, it's Tintara time is eight o'clock. <laughs> that was all you had to say. <laughs> but anyway, anyway, one night in disgust after I'd nagged him, he threw me the, uh, the Golden Circle uh, copy and pushed the mic on and said, you read it. Well, I started to read it, and I said, uh, you'll never taste anything as nice as the Golden Circle. <laughs> and I kept saying Golden Circle all the way through the commercial. And he was laughing, pissing his He was just laughing. He was off sick. <laughs> and he said, now, when, he, when, when we finished, and I, I said, my last Golden, golden Little Circle, he said to me, now I hope you realise why I didn't let you read the commercial. <laughs> Beautiful, Bill. Listen, besides that one, was there ever an incident on air that had you thinking you might get those don't-come-Monday orders? Uh, yes. Uh, I had the good fortune to be chosen to read the uh, prizes out on the last Jack Davies show for Macquarie that came out of Brisbane. They did it in the uh, old ABC a theatre on the west end of Brisbane. And I was over there, you know, when the quizzes was being done, and Jack would say, yes, you're correct, and, and what are the, what's the prize, Bill? And I did the thing. Anyway, what happened was during the show, 
he told me to read out the prize, and I read the wrong prize out. And I announced the wrong one, and, and a more expensive prize <laughs> got, got given away to the dismay of the producer, and then was expected to get, you know, to be given. And anyway, I got into terrible trouble over that after. But as it happened, Jack Davey was a lovely, a lovely man, and he understood, and he just laughed it off. And actually, to repay him, after that, whenever I came to Surface Paradise, I bought all my petrol from his service station, which was on the corner of Cavill Avenue, DP service station. But I'll tell you a funny thing about that. Jack was uh, doing the quiz with a contestant. He said, you've won a two-night two stay in the uh, something motel in Glen Innes. And the contestant said, uh, where's Glen Innes? And Jack Davey with a straight voice said, Glen Innes is next to godliness. <laughs> it was a classic, uh, one of the classic Jack Davies. <laughs> great. <laughs> great memories. Hey, listen, Bill, Skyhooks or Sherbert? Uh, I like Sherbert. I was at 3UZ when they won the Battle of the Bands, which was a big feature for 3UZ all the time I was there in the early 70s. And Sherbert were good, and they, and they always have been good, and I liked the guys too. So it was in the early 70s. So I'm, I'm a Sherbert guy. A bit more difficult, the Rolling Stones or the Beatles? Liked them both, loved the Beatles, interviewed them all at Lennon's Hotel when they came out here in 1960, uh, whatever it was, two or three. And uh, they were at Lennon's and uh, they, was, they were placed in the billiard room at Lennon's Hotel, a beetle on each corner of the big, big billiard table. And uh, we, there was only three of us allowed to interview them um, in Brisbane and I was one of them. And uh, and so John was on one corner and Paul was on one and Ringo was on one and George was on the other. I got a great interview out of uh, George uh, Harrison, he, just a lovely piece, and I've still got it. It's it's just great. So so I like the Beatles very much, but I did have a very soft spot for the Rolling Stones because two years later in '64, Harry Miller brought the Stones out, and the Festival Hall people wouldn't let them into Festival Hall for some contractual reason. So we had to do the concert at the Brisbane Town Hall. And I took, I, uh, I did a deal with uh, Harry, and not a deal, but Harry got me, conned me, if you like, into featuring the, uh, the Stones for half an hour every night on 4BH, which I did for about three weeks. We bashed the, uh, you know, the, all the Rolling Stone stuff. And it was a huge success. The thing was a sellout. And uh, and they took a liking to me at the time, I suppose. Why not? And uh, and I took them all water skiing on the Brisbane River the next day. All the stones came out, and we skied them out up and down the Brisbane River. Bill, do you have a most treasured piece of memorabilia from those heady rock and roll radio days? Well, uh, the the, the, the big, bit of memorabilia I've got is a big um, callus on my uh, forefinger that you use to stop the turntable from turning. You know, when you queue up the record, you stop the turntable with your finger. Well, of course, you you, you modern guys wouldn't realise this, but uh, that took a lot out of your finger. And I ha- I've got a big uh, a big callus on my finger. And it was, uh, it was, I think it was malice that caused the callus. Anyway, the other thing that I, I've got as a memorabilia situation was the Queensland Racing Drivers Pub Championship Cup. I, I, ran, I got that for two years. So that was quite important in the mid-60s. Can you recall the biggest news story that broke while you were on air? At NewZ, on air, 
1970, the Westgate Bridge collapsed and uh, it killed 35 workers and motorists who were driving across it. And our three Z News guys uh, were on the scene when bits of it were still falling down. So we, we broadcast that incredible tragedy as it happened on 3UZ. So that was a huge story and, uh, you know, something that really caught in your throat. You know, it was just terrible. And then the other time, I suppose, was in 1977 when the news came through that Elvis Presley had died in Memphis. And I was on the air at the time, so I just threw all the records on the floor and played Elvis all afternoon. And that night I did a piece uh, on Elvis Presley for Channel 7 on television. So that, that was pretty uh, pretty horrible too. So was there an on-air rival whose work you admired from a distance? Well, I had a lot of guys I used to listen to and like. And I suppose in the early days, my favourite on-air guy, well, Alan Tui, when I was a kid on TUW, because Alan was just the smoothest announcer. And the funniest guy on radio back then in those years, which nobody except me can remember, uh, was Clark Mackay. He was a South African and he was on 2GD. He was, he was great. And then later on, there was Mad Mel on 2SM. I don't know whether you remember Mad Mel. You, you have to listen to Mad Mel in Sydney during that period. And Tony Withers was uh, a great disc jockey on 2SM. And I caught up with Tony on Radio Caroline when I was on Radio 1 in London. He was on Caroline then too. And in the later years, Don Lunn, uh, was, I was a fan of Don's uh, at 3 UZ. In fact, I'll give you, uh, Don had a great sense of humor. And remember a record called A Whiter Shade of Pale by Procol Harum? Mm-hmm. And there's a great, line, a great line in that uh, where they sing, and there were 16 vestal virgins heading for the coast. And they'd sing that, and Don had come screaming across the top, Which way did they go? <laughs> <laughs> and I used, to, I used to tune in and ring him up and ask him what time he was going to play or why to show but just to hear it. <laughs> that was really classic. Anyway, there was Donny Lane on 3UZ and, of course, Bob Rogers, my old mate on 2UE and later on on 2CH, a great survivor. And sad to hear that Bob is, uh, you know, he finally retired, I think, at about 94 and what a radio broadcaster he was, Bob Rogers. What a what a survivor. And of course, then uh, all of, of all the favourites, the best of them all, Long John Laws. What a career that man has made of radio. The best voice in radio in the world, and always makes amazing radio and says amazing things. John Laws is my top of the pole. Now, Bill, what were the best words of advice you ever gave as a program director? Well, I came through the top 40 in rock and roll era and uh, the best advice I ever gave anyone was shut up and play the music. <laughs> a couple of records or CDs that would be on high rotation in the Gates household these days. Well, Barry Gibbs' new album gets a fair bit of playing and uh, apart from that, I've got about 9,000 songs on my you know list so I never run out of music but I, I often find myself listening to uh, my favourite rock and roll song, Won't Get Fooled Again by Who, which is absolute classic, I think, my favourite rock song. And, and we play anything by the Eagles. And uh, I suppose my Aussie favourites over the years are, uh, I, I really enjoy Glenn Sharrock's work. And also, one who's not so well known, but I think is a great stylist, Vince Jones in Melbourne. So they're two of my favourite Aussie guys. 
So living under one roof in the Gold Coast at the moment is an Australian media legend and a current Deputy Mayor of the Gold Coast. Who has the higher profile these days? Oh, oh Donna, Donna, Donna she's, she, you know, I'm not in the hunt. Donna's all over television every night. And, uh, and she's doing such a wonderful job. And, uh, and she's been there now uh, for, you know, I think three different, three elections uh, and run unopposed basically at all of them. So, yes, Donna's doing a great job here as the Deputy Mayor of the Gold Coast. And long may she live. <laughs> Absolutely. Hey, Bill, thank you so much for your time. It's been a thrill personally for me to have a chat with you, and I know our listeners would have enjoyed it immensely as well. You are a legend. All the best, and keep up the good health. Thank you, Paul. Thank you very much. Really appreciate the time. Thank you. We've been speaking with, and I'm sure he won't mind me saying, the 88-year-old Bill Gates here on Pilots of the Airwaves. Pilots of the Airwaves.